Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Swinney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. It is time for Bloomberg Opinion. We're pleased to be joined by Bloomberg Opinion columnist Peter Bach. He's a director at the Center for Health Policy and Outcomes at Monroe. Memorial Sloan Kettering's Cancer Center uh, in New York City. Dr. Bach, thanks so much for joining us here. Really fascinating column you have out talking about hospitals and the drug that's getting a lot of, uh, I think, press and a lot of attention for treatment, which is remdesivir. Give us a sense of kind of how hospitals are viewing this drug, how successful it has proven to be and what you think its future might be. Well, good morning. Thanks so much for having me. The drug, it's a drug that works against the COVID virus has some data suggesting it helps speed the recovery of COVID patients. And we don't really have a lot of other treatments out there, so there's enthusiasm. But right now there's a shortage. The drug costs a a tremendous amount of money. It's about $3,000 plus per treatment course. It has no data that demonstrates convincingly it saves lives. And uh, the administration has uh, sought to corner the worldwide market for it so hospitals can use it. Uh, but with all that optimism, my column focuses on two things. One is the data on remdesivir is from a different time, even though it's a few months ago. It was studied on older people. The pandemic has moved to younger people. And it was studied without steroids, dexamethasone specifically, which is clearly showing uh, an ability to save lives. And so now we need to understand, is remdesivir have a place here uh, before we proceed to give it to a bunch of people and spend billions of dollars on it? Dr. Bach, what can we say categorically and scientifically about remdesivir in terms of its relationship with COVID-19? Uh, we can say that there is uh, one study that shows it shortens the duration of illness, uh, and that is about it. That's good news. That, don't get me wrong. But this is not the panacea. This doesn't turn around the pandemic. This doesn't mean we can get rid of masks or go back to school or anything like that. We need to make these incremental steps. That's how it always works. And so this is not a disparagement of this piece of progress. It's a fair reckoning with just how big these steps typically are, which is not very Dr. Buck, you know, I'm reading more and more, I guess we're all reading more and more stories about hospitals in Southern California and Texas and Florida being overrun, no more ICU beds uh, available. It just, it's just a simple replay of what we experienced in the New York metropolitan market back in March and early April. Are you surprised that the hospital system across the country, given what they witnessed in New York metro area, aren't better prepared? No, I'm not. Uh, Part of it is, you know, triumph of hope over experience, Uh, the optimism that, you know, it hasn't happened here, so it won't happen uh, ever. But it's also, these are, you know, fixed physical structures. They can't suddenly have four times as many ICU beds. Uh, There are serious limitations to uh, workforce surge. There's not that much supply. There's personal protective equipment, people are scattered across the country and moving people is difficult. And so, no, I'm not surprised at all. We knew from the beginning that our most uh, limited uh, or biggest constraint in handling this pandemic was the healthcare system itself. 
It was the reason we tried to flatten the curve so we could both get better at treating this and also maintain, if you will, a steady, manageable flow of patients. And we have failed to do that, even though every other Western country has succeeded, I think because we have foolishly sat around saying, oh, well, we'll get a vaccine soon so we can be casual about this. We've allowed ideology to creep into public health planning, uh, maybe more creep in. How about trample over? And, you know, so I'm not surprised by any of this. And these hospitals are, I think, you know, pushed to the limit. And they are not designed in almost any cases to focus purely on the management of one problem. They manage a mix of problems in a ratio where there are various constraints. Hospital beds, staffing, IV tubing, everything is kind of gets them there. Dr. Bach, when it comes to the remdesivir problem and the fact that there aren't significant large-scale trials that can tell us exactly what it can and can't do when it comes to coronavirus, how do you get around the fact that in a pandemic people jump on anything that looks like it might work, but for a trial to give us any real information, you need one sick person and one other sick person, one gets the treatment, one doesn't. How do you make that kind of moral judgment at a time like this? Well, it's, you know, this is the foundation of empiric science, that we take our time, that we don't assume our guesses are right. And this isn't some fake humility. This is a hard-learned humility from having been shown over and over again our guesses were wrong. And so we have to do the studies for exactly the reasons you're suggesting there's an argument that we shouldn't be doing them. We are in a crisis that is exploding and expanding around us. What we learn today will have impact on 10 times, 100 times, potentially 1,000 times as many people down the road. And so that is one element of the moral or ethical underpinning of research. Another is, frankly, we have a remdesivir shortage. So what I'm calling for is let's go do a trial. Let's, it'll take maybe about 2,000 people. We could enroll such a trial, get the patients for it in a matter of days, unfortunately, because of the number of people coming into hospital. Everyone gets dexamethasone, which yes. we know saves lives. Half get remdesivir, half get placebo or some other control. We will know in 14 days, in a month, whether or not... Doctor, we're out of time, I'm afraid. We'll, we'll revisit this. Thank you so much. Well, one of the byproducts of this pandemic is is just kind of exacerbating or highlighting some of the tensions between a lot of nations across uh, the world. And clearly it's a unique time here. And one of the questions is, how will the new world order look post-pandemic as we think about uh, kind of how the United States may or may not lead and how your positioning of Europe and so on? So there's no one better to discuss these big, big geopolitical issues. And Alan Crawford, senior editor, international government for Bloomberg News, joins us on the phone from Berlin. Uh, Alan, thanks so much for joining us here. You're out with a story a few days ago. A new world order for the coronavirus era is starting to emerge. Give us a sense of how you think this new world order may look. Well, I I think we all get the feeling that there's something momentous underway. And so I tried to take a step back to take a look at um, where we are six months in. And already there are definite trends that we see that um, the U.S., um, I I have to say, from an outside perspective, it just looks regardless of the the politics. It just looks as if it's increasingly self-absorbed 
uh, ahead of going into the November election, of course, but also with the, the pandemic, it's having to fight this this terrible um, virus and um, it's occupied um, as far as the outside world is concerned. But then, of course, we're seeing China, for, for reasons of its own that I don't think are completely understood, it's it, there are these high frictions with countries from Canada to Australia to the UK over Hong Kong, um, and of course with the US as well, uh, and these are all coming together at once. And then Europe is in this kind of strange in-between position where it's trying to, it, there are signs it may just emerge from this uh, crisis stronger. What will be the decisive moment at which it really becomes obvious that China has already sort of become a bigger figure in world politics than maybe the US and Europe had given it credit for? Well, I mean, if we're looking at the six months ahead, then obviously um, the US election is a huge, um, it's the elephant in the room, if you like. And certainly the, the, the analysts that I spoke to, they were somewhat wary about um, um, conflicts ahead. I'm not talking about open conflict, but, you know, tensions, more frictions ahead of the November election. But equally, uh, as I said, that China is, is it's, it, there's all these frictions with other countries, middling powers, if you like. And I think that the, the sense is that these countries, like, uh, well, across the EU, the UK, Australia, Canada, uh, and others, they are being faced with a very difficult choice. Do they stand up to China or do they basically try and keep their head down? And I think that there's a sense that, that their decision will actually go a long way towards um, determining um, the approach to China. So it's interesting here. We're going to ha- you mentioned the election, and let's just say for argument's sake that the that uh, Vice President Biden wins the election. Does the does his secretary of state spend the first 100 days of administration simply on a plane traveling around to all these countries saying, that, OK, those last four years, just forget them. We're going back to business as, as usual. We are your friend. We will be part of the solution. We will lead you against, you know, whether it was a Cold War 30, 40 years ago to whatever it is we have in the future. I, I think undoubtedly that would be the case. But what effect that would have? I'm not sure, because on the one hand, yes, there was room to improve relations. Um, On the other, then, really, the tensions between, for example, um, European countries, um, France, Germany, uh, with the the Trump administration, then that has really highlighted Europe's... um, Europe's dependence on the U.S., which is a, is a it, it's obviously it goes back to the Second World War uh, and all of the help that uh, the U.S. has given to Europe, and the, you know the, how essential the transatlantic relationship is. But really, it's highlighted just this this dependence, and I think that you, I know that European governments and the EU independently are already taking steps to try and to decouple to some extent, to some limited extent. Alan, you know, there's always this talk of clash of civilizations, you know, Henry Kissinger and Neil Ferguson talking about a, you know, a new Cold War between the US and China. Those things, though, are quite hyperbolic. Where is there any evidence that there will actually be sort of a breakout of conflict, you know, soft or hard between, you know, the, the the bipolar countries in this war? 
Well, certainly one of the analysts that I was speaking to who sits in Singapore, then he said that um, that his greatest concern uh, going forward, and, and he's talking um, short to medium term, is not that there's some kind of open conflict between the US and, and China, because the governments obviously realise that that's, uh, it, it would be catastrophic. His concern is more that there is some kind of, like, basically mistake, some kind of error in, in these high percentage areas such as the South China Sea, where, you know, the US has sent two aircraft carriers through recently, uh, and that, that there's more, uh, it's, it's basically um, an accident that could happen. That's, that's what the concerns are, um, in, um, certainly among the, the analyst community. Mm. So, Alan, what's the, the consensus of the European Union and Brexit and what the role the UK may play here in a post-Brexit world in terms of the world order? Well, that's a good question. That's actually my next story. Okay, <laughs> we'll preview that. I'm working on. <laughs> but, I mean, the, the UK is in a difficult position. That it's, it's really setting out on its own uh, to try and forge its own... Um, its own path in, in this increasingly um, increasingly tense um, world at the moment. And so that they are having, the, the, the Foreign Minister, um, Dominic Raab, Foreign Secretary, has made it clear that they have difficult choices ahead. And um, we're seeing that already over Hong Kong. We're seeing it over Huawei. That's not, not unique to the UK, of course. But these are, these are decisions which will have potentially very deep ramifications for its relations as an independent country, a middling power, uh, when it's having to deal with um, the superpowers of, of, of China, but also with the, uh, any, with either the Trump administration, which is friendly and wants a trade deal, or the Biden, a Biden administration. We don't know what their position would be on, on, uh, on uh, post-Brexit UK and a trade deal. Alan, looking forward to seeing that story, but this particular story you have out uh, this this morning in the last couple of days is fascinating. I'd urge everybody to read it. Alan Crawford is Senior Editor for International Government at Bloomberg News, and his story is a new world order for the coronavirus era is starting to emerge. And it is an interesting question, Paul, to talk about who Joe Biden might pick, you know, in terms of foreign policy. We know already that he has the former uh, CIA Deputy Director on a potential transition team were he to, to become President at some point. And, um, you know, it, it looks like there might be, you know, quite a, a forceful stance there. So we have a deal today. Analog devices acquiring Maxim integrated products, $20.9 billion, a 22% premium to Maxim's closing shares Friday. And it's helping the Nasdaq lead the gains for the indices today. Let's bring somebody in who can tell us all the details about why this deal was done. Wu Jinho is Senior Technology Analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence. Wu, just explain to us, first of all, why Analog would want Maxim. Great. Thanks for having me on, Bonnie. So this is all about scale and and trying to broaden um, Analog devices' uh, chip footprint so they can better compete against uh, their larger competitor, uh, Texas Instruments, uh, over the long term. So, uh, actually, Vani, I should probably let you know the first thing I do when I see an M&A deal 
in the news. I go to MAGO and I see, I type on there and I click, click, click on the deal. I want to see who the advisors are, who are the bankers on this deal. And I thought you were going to say you sell your stock. <laughs> yes, it was B of A, Merrill Lynch, and Morgan Stanley advising the buyer on the sell side, JP Morgan. So, so the big heavyweight investment banks weighing in on this deal. So, Wooch, can we look at this deal here? Uh, you talk about its scale. We've heard that before. Give us a sense of kind of how the the semiconductor industry is in terms of consolidation. Is it still a fragmented industry, or are we down to just a handful of heavyweights? Well, I mean, it, it, it is a bifurcated market. So you, you have the heavyweights like Texas Instruments, um, you know, as, as well as analog devices. Uh, you have microchip. So you, you have these larger players, and then you have a, a bunch of smaller players, specialized chip makers. Um, so to, to some degree, it's still fairly fragmented. Uh, roughly, I, I would say about 40 to 50 percent of the market share goes to these heavyweight players and then fragmented on the, on the other side. Um, and the one thing I will tell you is that, look, this market has been uh, in a phase of consolidation over the last uh, five years or so. Um, you know, it, it took a hiatus for the last couple of years. Now it's finally, it, it seems as if some companies are looking uh, to come back in, in deal making and, and, and the analog devices and Maxim is uh, an example of that. Wujin, we have a $275 million cost synergy announcement. It doesn't seem like a lot of cost synergies. Um, am I expecting too much from a merged analog maxim? Sure. So, so I mean, you know, if you look at uh, the scale of, of maxim, uh, there's, there's really not much that you can uh, take out. And if I look at the, the cost synergy opportunities here, it's on the gross margin side and then uh, not much on the operating margin side. So on the gross margin side, you can actually uh, port over some of the chip capacity over to the analog uh, devices, uh, fabs. And then on, on, on the, the operating expense side, um, you know, uh, uh, Maxim has actually done a very good job in streamlining the organization over the last five years. So they're re- they were really uh, running into the bone. There's a little bit that they can take away, but uh, not that much more. But but even then, you are going to still see the overall maximum margins improve to where analog devices is, which is around 41%, 42%. So, Wooj, talk to us about the end users here of some of the chips that analog and maxim puts out. Give us a sense of who their big customers are and what are some of the, the growth drivers for their part of the chip industry. I, I wouldn't necessarily the, uh, call out any particular big customers, uh, similar to someone like an Intel or an NVIDIA. Uh, if anything, these guys have a portfolio of over 10, uh, you know, 10 to 20,000 chips combined, wow. uh, addressing, you know, uh, you know, 15,000 different customers. It'll go anywhere between Maxim has exposure into your, your Nintendo, uh, uh, your, your, your Nintendo switch. Uh, Apple has exposure to, uh, some, uh, uh, analog devices has exposure to some uh, Apple devices. Automotive, they're, they're very big on automotive. Industrial, robotics, they're very big on uh, in, in that sector. And also data center uh, power chips and, and, uh, and uh, uh, converted chips. So uh, they're very broad based from, from a customer and industrial uh, perspective. Now, Wujin, these are two of the biggest semiconductor companies. There are obviously bigger ones, but, uh, you know, analog at $43 billion market cap and, you know, maximum at $18, $19 billion. Who will be next? So we have Infineon, we have NXP, Skyworks. Uh, really, really, really tough to say, Bonnie. Um, 
you know, I, I didn't think um, the, the matching deal would happen uh, now during during the pandemic. Uh, you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised if uh, some of the smaller uh, companies, some of these, these smaller niche vendors, uh, would come into play. Hmm. Uh, you know, I've, I've seen some headlines where someone like a Cirrus Logic would provide chips to the iPhone, uh, or or Semtech, uh, which which provides a wireless chip, uh, wireless chips to the um, uh, 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 to industrial applications, you know, and, and then th- there's also, you need to think that we need to have a willing buyer as well. I mean, you know, this is an all-stock deal, uh, which helps preserve analog devices cash. Uh, the one thing we do have to think about that some of the larger companies uh, may be in cash preservation mode, so right. they won't be able to use their cash as much to uh, consummate a large deal like this. Wu Jin Ho, thanks so much for joining us, helping us break down this deal. Wu Jin Ho is a senior tech analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. He follows uh, all the t- the devices and the uh, the chip makers uh, out there. So we appreciate his opinion. Well, the responses to the economic fallout of this pandemic have been swift and uh, severe here in the United States. First, we had the Federal Reserve really step in and inject tremendous amount of liquidity uh, into the marketplace. We've had uh, three rounds of fiscal stimulus coming out of Congress, capped by round three a couple months ago, totaling $3 trillion. Uh, Now pressure is building on a fourth round to come out of Washington, and that is less clear uh, what will be in that and the size and and the timing and so on. So to get an update here, what it means in the world of Washington and for our broader economy, we welcome Matt Gertkin, geopolitical strategist for BCA Research based in Montreal, Quebec. Uh, Thanks so much for joining us, Matt. Let's just start off there. Fiscal stimulus round number four, what do you expect? When do you expect it? Hey, thanks for having me on. Well, I would expect something upward of two trillion U.S. dollars. And by the time the Senate goes for recess on August 10th, the anything much less than that, anything much less than what the House Democrats have passed at three trillion uh, risks forcing the U.S. fiscal thrust to pull back. And that's not something a president running for re-election would want to have happen. What makes you think it'll be two trillion? We're seeing one trillion for the next round, and uh, it does strike me that there will have to be some kind of accommodation made in Congress. Yeah, right now the Senate GOP, and actually for several months, has been saying one trillion. Uh, President Trump and some members of his administration have said two trillion, but most recently Mike Pence and one of his aides implied that maybe he's on the one trillion side. And then the Democrats, as I mentioned, were pushing for a $3 trillion bill. So Trump's in the middle. But as I say, he's got an election to fight, and he's a big spender anyway. He's been fiscally profligate. So I think he'll end up on the big end of this, uh, siding with the Democrats. And then I think that the GOP senators are going to have to just get with the program, because if they don't, they'll suffer if Trump suffers. So, Matt, we're, we're getting closer and closer to uh, that fall election, which strangely Uh, has been on the back burner here as as everyone is focused on the pandemic. What's kind of the thinking in your world as to what perhaps a Biden presidency might mean? Uh, What are some of your big takeaways that you're looking at right now? Yeah, well, the big change that has happened is that the United States is doing this massive uh, stimulus. And so if if I'm anywhere close to correct on that stimulus, we could end up with something of 6% of global GOP GDP being U.S. fiscal stimulus. Uh, We're looking at the U.S. maybe putting in 20% of its own GDP in in stimulus. So that's a massive turn, and that's going to power a cyclical 
rebound, as we've seen, and over the long run, that should be the decisive factor, kind of regardless of who wins the election. Uh, But a Biden administration clearly is going to have a major regulatory shock, reversing the deregulation that Trump did. And that's even if he doesn't win the Senate. In truth, he's very likely to win the Senate for the Democrats if he does win the White House. And then in that case, uh, you could have, I think, an extraordinary windfall of a a shift to the left in terms of health care, in terms of immigration, in terms of even the tech sector facing a little bit more scrutiny. And then, of course, you also have uh, you have the, the cyclical reflationary impacts there of spending more and giving more for people in wages and household uh, spending. But then you have this headwind for corporates that have to worry more about taxes and regulations. The only clues we have as to the type of campaign that he's he's you know, running or the type of presidency that he would he would um, lead, though, Matt, is the people that he's already appointed to a, a potential transition team. We're not really seeing a whole lot of economic messaging. How, where is your evidence to suggest that there be a hard turn left? Yeah, Biden is a centrist, and that's how he won the nomination. He's a, he's a center-left establishment politician, no question about that. Uh, but remember that the way that you try to predict the outlook for things like this is not by wildly guessing based on a president's preferences. I mean, President Trump had a preference of a 45% tariff on all Chinese imports, but he didn't get that. The issue is that the winner of the White House is likely to bring the Senate with them. And when the Senate goes Democratic and you get a full blue sweep, uh, which is certainly what looks likely today if the election were held today, well, in that environment, the constraint on the Democratic Party is removed. Uh, Biden will be pressured by his party to take advantage of a historic situation. And that's, remember, similar to when the Obama administration came in. But there's a lot of frustration in the party that there was too much of an attempt to be bipartisan under the Obama administration so that this is a crisis that really can't go to waste this time around. And I think that's how the party is going to play things. So the filibuster, for instance, is very much at risk in the Senate. So, Matt, given that the the Senate's, the Republicans in the Senate are at risk here, are you surprised they haven't broken ranks with President Trump? Well, I think in some ways they have. I mean, I think in the news flow over the past several months, you've seen a lot more flaking off from the senators than you had at any previous time in Trump's administration. And that's because the administration is just fundamentally weakened and embattled by a global pandemic and a recession, uh, Trump's handling of those issues. Uh, so I, I do see some uh, some wobbling uh, within the Senate ranks, but also, of course, you, you're seeing the real divisions that always existed between the establishment Republicans who might want to be more fiscally hawkish and President Trump, who's just a big spending populist and wants, especially in this case, to make sure that he gives the economy a jolt ahead of the election. And that may even be behind that little difference between, you know, Trump implying that he wants to go even bigger than the Democrats on stimulus while Mike Pence's office is maybe implying he wants to be more where Mitch McConnell is at $1 trillion. Matt, what can we expect to hear from Biden next? I mean, we, we haven't heard all that much. I guess there's not, a, there's not a whole lot of advantage to him being out there and, uh, you know, making a lot of public statements. But when, when will he start? Well, in August, you know, we, obviously the virus is throwing everyone for a loop on timing. But in August, you're supposed to have the party conventions. And the party convention is a time where he will complete this process we've seen in recent months of him touching every base in the Democratic Party and its constituencies to show everyone and in, in across the nation that he's allied with the progressives, that he's allied with the different voting groups. 
Um, and, and ultimately, he's going to want President Barack Obama's backing and other top Democrats' backing. Uh, so I think he's going to have to start getting out more uh, later in, uh, in August. Uh, but in the meantime, he is perfectly happy to kind of hide away in his basement or wherever he is and let President Trump attract the attention uh, with often his con- controversial or unorthodox statements and, and take the heat. Well, yes, indeed. Matt, thank you. So interesting to speak with you. And, and indeed, as you say, August, yep. it seems quite <laughs> late. It's very close to an election. It must be one of the few times that you really have only had a competitor sort of emerge properly a couple of months before. I mean, there was there was a little time back where he was he was out there, but uh, he was pulled back in quite I think it's quickly. a strategy. Just I think it is, the too. It's nothing but bad news out there. Why yeah. get in that news cycle? Exactly. Matt Gartkin is geopolitical strategist at BCA Research. He joined us there from Montreal in Canada. So that's uh, that'll do it for this two hours of markets. But do stay tuned. We're following the markets throughout the day here on Bloomberg Radio. Indices now up one and a quarter percent plus, in fact. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Bonnie Quinn. I'm on Twitter at Bonnie Quinn. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.